and thunder. We're talking Dice Masters, the beauty of the underlying mechanics, the hidden complexities and the strategy, tactics, and decisions of competitive play. If you're just starting the game or have been here since the first set, hopefully you'll find something in this show that'll do you some good. So shake up your bag, reconnoiter your opponent, and get ready to roll. So, welcome back to Rolling Thunder. This is our first episode of the new season, season three. We're now going to break the seasons after the World Championship events. And we've got Lucan back in studio with us. Lucan, just welcome just home. for the intro and outro, but yeah, I'm here. <laughs> yeah, we had a whole bunch of difficulties getting this last episode out the door. We recorded it, geez, how long ago? Over a month ago. It would have been. Probably early November around something like that yeah we owe Dave a huge apology he was a great guest and I just got hit with a work tsunami we, we also had technical <laughs> difficulties because there's like some weird firewall at my school that makes it difficult to do the multi-peer aliasing or whatever the big word is but it kept on booting me from the call like every five or so minutes and that made it hard to edit so I hear there's some weird VPN trouble as well. I don't know. Yeah, I know John Wooden always said, don't make excuses. Your friends don't need them and your enemies won't believe them. But there's a couple excuses for you. At any rate, we're finally getting this out the door. And I think it's a good one. So sorry about that, Dave. But if you want to follow along with us as we go, we talk about a lot of subjects and we throw out a few links. The place to find those links is at... This is my big moment www.rollandthunder.xyz forward slash 301. 301, right. I'm so good. For season three, episode one. And with that, let's kick this off. You ready to rock and roll? I'm ready. All right. So tonight on the show, we welcome someone who is long overdue, a founding member of the reserve pool, a winner of the 2017 Detroit Shark Tank WKO, and a top eight finalist in the very first U.S. Dice Masters U.S. National Championships way back in 2015, not to mention a previously nominated entrant to our Dice Masters Hall of Fame. Ladies and gentlemen, please face the Duke and welcome Mr. Dave Morris. Dave, welcome to Rolling Thunder. Hi. <laughs> I don't know how to follow that up. Uh, I think I'm going to weep. <laughs> well, like I said, you know, we've been long overdue and having you on the show. And I mean, your influence is indelibly imprinted on the history of our game in so many ways. So we're really excited to have you on the show tonight. Just welcome, you know? Thank you. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Well, great. Well, to get things started tonight, let's hop in the Wayback Machine and flashback to like 2014-ish. How did you discover the game, and what was your gaming background before Dice Masters? So I played a lot of board games. At that point, we already had a decent collection, about two Calyx shells worth, if we're talking <laughs> Ikea here. Right. Though I guess at the time, that was Expedit, right? That was the precursor to Calyx. So old, right? now. Um, we, we had a healthy collection of board games. I was watching a lot of stuff like the Dice Tower, listening to a lot of those podcasts, Dice Tower, Secret Cabal, and so forth and so on. I saw Tom Vassell's review of Dice Masters, and immediately I said, oh, 
mm-hmm. and was right away interested. We had Dominion, Ascension, a couple of deck builders, Interesting. and I like them okay, but Dice Masters really built on that in a way that even Quarriers had not. Right. And I was immediately excited. That's interesting you brought up those... That was a very similar story to us. Yeah. Because um, we also found Dice Masters through Tom Vassell and (laughs) our appreciation for Dominion, but also our understanding of its imperfections. It's interesting that you brought up those two games in particular, Dominion and Quarriers, because... That is kind of a hybrid of those two in terms of the deck building aspect of the game kind of being similar to Dominion. And, and then, of course, Quarriers is the DNA. Obviously, you played Dominion. Did you play Quarriers too as well? A very little bit. At one point, WizKids released an app for Quarriers, and that was my mm. first exposure to it. Okay. And I want to say that I discovered that app around the time and was trying to fill the gap until Dice Masters actually released. Oh, wow. Because Tom Vassell's video was a little while ahead of that very first AVX starter coming out. Yeah, that's interesting. I, in my mind, I always thought that the Quarriers app came out after, but how great would it be to have... I'm flashing back here. I'm jumping around a little bit. But I remember the days when Vassal was around and... You know, it was useful to have. It'd be great to have a an app. I don't know if it's possible with the volume of Dice Masters, but maybe. I don't know. It would be nice. It, webcam games are good, but for example, I have a friend I'm working with right now that's the, the friend I'm teaching to play that I've talked about on UOD before on those videos, mm-hmm. and his internet connection is not so hot, so playing via webcam is just really troublesome. Right. So it would be nice to have a digital solution, but I'm not going to hold my breath there. Yeah, you know, the other thing that Vassal was useful for, I found, was like, you know, it takes a long time to actually physically put the teams together with the dice sometimes, especially when we've got, I don't know how many thousand cards. So, you know, it's nice to be able to just kind of do that virtually sometimes and test things out without having to actually physically pull everything out of the binders and stuff. Oh, absolutely. No question. (laughs) Back to the reserve pool. So that's your background on how you came to the game. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming you were right off the get-go from 2014 from AVX and right at the launch of everything, correct? Yes. So I started the reserve pool as a blog on Blogspot. It was just me. Uh, you say one of the founders? No. You were it, it was, that was it. I was a solo operation at first. <laughs> cool. um, I wanted, yeah, I wanted to have an outlet for a game. I mean, I was obviously really interested in it. I started the blog. I, I started building stuff, right? I saw that Dice Tower review of the game. I immediately got to work. Cool. Uh, it was all really rough and whatnot at first because I'm no kind of graphic designer or anything. Uh, if only we had Canva back then, right? Right. But at the time, I, I knew I wanted to get to a podcast, but that wasn't going to work well solo. I wanted to bring a similar vibe to what Dice Tower did because I was listening to a lot of that podcast, watching those videos at the time, mm-hmm. but instead focused on a single game, right? Early on, I kind of stole Vassal's tagline, right? He says, uh, oh, what is it? A podcast about games and the people who love to play them. I said the same thing, a podcast about Dice Masters and the people who love to play it. (laughs) Right. Absolutely. You know, great artists steal. Um, But yeah, but it's really funny because a lot of things had to go exactly the right way to make it into what it became. Right. You know, if Katie and Evan were just a little less on top of things early on, or if I didn't meet Randy and so forth, so much of the rest just crumbles away. It would still have existed, but it would have looked really, really differently. And then one day I get an email popped in my inbox from Ken, who was the mastermind for the expanded website, what it became with the community blogging and the large forum. And if that hadn't happened, you know, of course, at the time, that website was great, but that brought its own issues. 
and you know we were also at the cusp but not quite there of stuff like discord and slack becoming the primary way to communicate instead of a forum it was a lot of stuff to to deal with all at once especially because it doesn't sound like you were uh, had any kind of it background before this right really no not real ken was our it okay and then when uh, when paul came on one of the things that he worked on was also among helping with all of the Dice Master stuff that we're already doing, a big thing that he was able to bring to the table was to help with a lot of the day-to-day IT stuff uh, because Ken was a real busy guy and hard to get a hold of sometimes. Wow, interesting. So before we get to Katie, Evan, Ken, Randy, uh, and Paul, it sounds like you heard about the game, you set up a blog. Was that even before you had a local scene set up? I mean, I'm yes. just, wow, that's, that's commitment. That's foresight. That's very interesting. That's really cool. So did you set up a local scene or how did that work? How did you navigate between these two worlds, so to speak? So playing Dice Masters is, well, let me let me rephrase that. Playing any CCG that's not the big three can be really, really difficult. I, I think that's hard for people who live near urban cores to understand that the experience of a game, any given game, is vastly different. And what looks alive and healthy at your store might look dead just 50 miles or even less from where you sit. Right. So the first game store that was doing stuff with Dice Masters in my area was about about a 40-minute drive away from where I was living at the time. And we were doing about an event a month, and that was fine. Though even a lot of that did not get started until actually D.C. The very first event we held there was a D.C. Dice Masters draft. My first event, I went to Ohio to visit Randy, and we went to a UXM draft. Oh, interesting. So... Yeah, I went to that first U.S. Nationals. I went to it without having had much opportunity to experience any organized play whatsoever. And we had just done a lot of playtesting ahead of time. Um, So the scene really did come later. But the way that that was able to work and still able to be like decent at the game, (laughs) um, (laughs) decent enough for a top eight. And we we can talk later about the history there and how close actually that came. Because I almost beat Walsh uh, in top eight. I was a turn away or a a die face away. But in any case... It was, it was from doing this and talking through all of those strategic bits that whole time and just really like living in the game in, in a lot of ways. That's a hobby, a healthy way, I promise, I swear. <laughs> but, uh, right. but yeah, so the, yeah, the organized play came a lot later. And then more recent from that, there was a store near here that we were able to get a few people in and playing regularly. It was only ever a, a fairly small group. I think the most we had was probably for one of the PDC tournaments that we had. It was probably like eight to ten people, mm-hmm. which was cool. But for the most part, it was core four of us. But we were playing weekly and doing a lot of stuff. My office was moving to a different location that was no longer convenient to this store. Mm. And so the scene just kind of died from there, unfortunately. Got it. Yeah. Being a, a megaphone for the game, you know, as a website and as a podcast can really help the local scene. So it's it's interesting to hear that the megaphone came first in some ways. And it just the foresight, I think, is really, really, really cool. So obviously you knew Randy beforehand. What's what's your guys' background, uh, real quick? Well, actually, let's go in or, let's go in order. I didn't sure. meet Randy till after. Oh, uh, so okay. K- Katie was the first person in. Okay, and I stumbled upon her on Reddit. I said, "Hey, I'm doing this thing. Wow, and I'd like to get a podcast going." And Katie messaged me. We did a quick chat. It was pretty clear we had a similar mindset on things. Mm-hmm. The great thing about Katie that she brought was an equal level of enthusiasm as me, but then also level headedness to balance my very hard on the sleeve ness. <laughs> right. And then she's friends with Evan and said he had some really good thoughts about the game. So we welcomed him aboard like almost immediately. Cool. And that was that. That was how we started like that. I mean, that was the podcast right away. 
And eventually Randy, again, read it. He was interested in writing and he showed me some stuff that he had written before. And I said, absolutely. We're doing all the podcast stuff. We'd love to get more articles out there. Come on board. And a similar thing. We just started talking and we hit it off and it worked well. Then he had a connection with JT. They're they're good friends. Okay. And JT's credentials with Dice Masters now speak for themselves. And it just kind of flew from there. Some people might remember Chris mm-hmm. from a little further in the, the Midwest. He got involved for a bit. I believe he was acquainted with Randy in some way. And he wanted to do video. He had some equipment. And we wanted more video stuff. So perfect. Right. Then RJ, who brought Pat in. And they had the idea for the prep area. How did you get in touch with RJ in Canada and everything? How did that I come about? I don't remember. That's interesting, isn't it? I yeah. can't tell you how that happened, but I still talk to RJ now and again. In fact, you know, I've, I've lost touch with some of them, you know, Katie, Evan, Ken, but like RJ, Randy, JT, uh, they remain friends. I, I still talk to them with some regularity. Uh, RJ and I, for a while, were playing a lot of League of Legends Wild Rift on mobile together <laughs> for a while. Randy and JT, I still reach out to and chat now and again. It's really cool. Uh, despite some distance in location there, we've, we've managed to keep in good touch. And that's been amazing to build friendships like that. Oh, yeah. Uh, the game. Especially the amount of work that's required to put a podcast and a website and all that stuff together. And to hear that it came out of Reddit, a lot of it, it's kind of interesting. It's kind of a cool peel back the curtain thing. And and you've made friendships that way through the game that have lasted seven, eight years now. So that's really sure. awesome. Uh, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Joel. Yeah. You know, obviously he's the guy who put together the PDC. He also made the logo. Mm-hmm. Um, we were talking about getting involved with a podcast right here. I know he's been pretty busy with a few different ventures, so that hasn't come to fruition, but that's okay. We're not hurting for it with the UOD stuff, but still talk to him and did a lot of online gaming with him, then met more friends through him, completely unrelated to Dice Masters, who I would not have known. <laughs> in fact, one of those people was somebody I'm teaching a lot of Dice Masters to now who got interested in it. Oh, that's cool. Uh, so it's just it's just really funny how where the internet is today. Yeah. Right. I, this is the most boomer phrase I can say. But where the internet is today, <laughs> the friendships that you can develop despite distance and like really good friendships. And I think that was really very important uh, through COVID. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. Well, the, you know, this is a flashback pre-Discord, pre-all of that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. You know, we were talking earlier about the forum and, and Ken. Yeah. How did Ken, did, was Ken through Reddit as well uh, then? Or? No. Ken sent me an email and said, hey, I have some ideas. Okay. Let's talk. I listened to him. Ken was very involved in the Heroescape scene. Okay. And he did a lot with the Heroescapers website. I have to check and see if that's if that's still around now that Heroescape is going to be revived mm-hmm. uh, by the Avalon Hill branch of Hasbro. Very excited for that, by the way. But uh, he was very involved in that and showed me what it was. And so was able to see that and just understand that, yeah, this is a legit person uh, mm-hmm. from all of those things. And we we talked about it. We listened. We said, what, what could this look like? He prototyped some stuff and we put it together and, and there it was. And we had that big switch. It was it was a really crazy time um, when we had the big switch. He imported all the articles. We had the forum. We were hyping it up. Like I, I went back when we were planning this show and uh, <laughs> pulled up the old blog roll because it was just Blogspot that we used, right? Bo- right. Blogspot and buy a domain. And forward it. But uh, looking back at all those old articles all the way up to when we were like going to flip the switch off over there and move it over to the new thing. It's just crazy. During your heyday, you guys at the Reserve Pool had three podcasts going. I mean, it's really incredible feat. And plus the website, plus the, the forum. I mean, you were all things to everyone at that point in time. 
it's it's really hard to encapsulate it all in the space of this show. But if you had to choose three episodes, your three favorite, you know, go to a desert island episodes from the reserve pool, from the podcast at any rate, what would they be? I, I just had a curiosity. Okay. So the first one that comes to mind is, and I look back at the back catalog in, the, in those posts. First, the, the ramp and churn episode from the very early days. We're talking episode two <laughs> of the Reserve Fool podcast that was before Professor X was printed. Right. The best we had was Norman Osborn, Green Goblin, and Beast Mutate 666. Right. But that was the very first discussion, to my knowledge, about ramp and calling it ramp and calling it churn. Mm-hmm. Uh, specifically, the churn part of it was more Evan's flag. But that was the first discussion of that stuff. And those terms are still used today, both yeah. of them. It's actually really weird to look at some of the lingo that was coined back then and see that it's still discussed and still used. That's, That's very crazy. Like TFC, people still talk about that. We came up with that <laughs> out of a random discussion. Like, wow. Another one... I think one of the very first Level Up episodes we did, it was before the Attack Zone, but that's where those kind of later found their home. Mm-hmm. It was on the Reserve Pool. It was the Quadrant Theory episode, talking uh, about card evaluation, specifically with an eye towards Limited. Mm-hmm. That was really good. That was the point where I'd taken a new perspective and started to look at more the nuts and bolts strategic stuff more consciously. Right. And then finally, the kickoff to what was like basically the last season of TAZ, the Commitment episode. It refocused the show into what it probably should have been to begin with. That was where Randy, JT, and myself kind of sat down and said, okay, we look ahead at the next competitive season in Dice Masters. What do we want to accomplish by the end of this? Mm -hmm. And then try and frame the next however many episodes until the end of that season through the lens of how are we developing to that point? Where are we falling short? What topics can we bring up? What do we know that we can bring to the others? Or what are we struggling with that we can kind of have a Dice Masters therapy session and and, and fix? And that was really cool. We emphasize self-analysis and self-improvement and try to make ourselves better as players and then invite other people along for the same journey. Mm -hmm. Uh, That really shifted things in this show. I think that was when TAZ was at its best. And that also really shifted things mentally for me Yeah, um, in a really positive way. I really remember that last, that episode you're talking about and you guys set out goals for yourself and then gave yourself really actionable steps that you wanted to accomplish and how you were going to go about it. I thought, you know, from a practical, how to get better as a player perspective, I thought it was very, very useful. One of the things you just mentioned there was quad theory. Can you elaborate on that? For those of us who weren't, weren't around at the time, what, what is quad theory? What, what was the idea there, if you can remember? So quadrant theory is something that I copped from a Magic the Gathering-related podcast, and we can talk about that later as well, because mm-hmm. I know there's some of those other terms you wanted to get into. But it's a term that I took there, and it's a means of card evaluation where you look at how is a card going to perform for me in four different parts of the game. Early game, parity, as in no one is winning or losing. Yep when you're ahead, and when you're behind. And if a card can perform well for you in all four of those things, that's an amazing card and you should really consider including it. But you're really looking at, you know, what can it do for me? How can it change things to, you know, how can I break parity? How can I come back from losing? How can I close the door if I'm winning? How can I set up well in the early game and so forth and so on? And that's the idea behind quad theory. Okay, cool. You just mentioned magic. Did you have a background in magic? Were you a magic player before? Probably, I'm assuming. A very little bit. Mm -hmm. I I don't really play magic much beyond the odd game of Commander. 
But I got a lot of inspiration for this stuff from the Magic the Gathering podcast called Limited Resources. Okay. Marshall Sutcliffe does that podcast right now. Louis Scott Vargas, who's MTG Hall of Fame pro, etc., is his co-host. And he loves those level up topics. And that's where I took the term from. He calls them level ups as well. And there are a lot of things where I would hear it on that show and I would say to myself, okay, now how do I apply this to Dice Masters? Right. And then that would be an episode of something. And ultimately, that's where the attack zone kind of grew out of. But yeah, not a lot of magic. I don't know if it's like the attempt to be some kind of TCG hipster. It's like, oh, it's too popular. <laughs> but I, I think there is there is baggage that comes with any long-standing game like that where I'm just inclined to sort of shrug it off. Right. My personal experience with magic, not to yuck anybody's yum if they're magic enthusiasts, but I've had a couple friends who were super into magic, and when they tried to convert me, I was not sold. I do not <laughs> think that the game speaks for itself like Dice Masters does. Well, I mean, it's a different game, but it's interesting how... <sighs> People who've, who've had a background in magic seem to take to Dice Masters very easily. And the concepts from magic, as stated from this podcast, are transferable. Like, and I was thinking of another one that you uh, talked about back in the day, which was the old recognizing the beatdown. Can you talk a little bit about that for those who didn't tune in for that episode? Absolutely. So, well, let me say, too, some of those concepts are just universal across a lot of card games. For sure. Because these are like big picture, broad strokes strategic thinking it's it's an approach thing it's a mentality and mm -hmm. and that really helps and that also helps provide a bridge for people who are newer to the game that may be familiar with the genre but who's the beatdown was like a classic magic the gathering article and like still cited today still just as relevant today in many different games the idea is that in every game it doesn't matter whether you have an aggro deck control deck whatever there's one person who is essentially the control player they need the game to go long in order to win. And there's another person who's aggro where you need to win quick because if the game goes long, you're probably going to lose. And you need to be able to read which one am I mm -hmm. and then act upon it. And if you miss that decision point, you're behind and you will likely lose the game. Yeah, no, that's cool. Can you think of any other ones that were magic things from that podcast that made their way into the reserve pool at one point in time? Marshall is big on results-oriented thinking mm -hmm. and not being rotty, as he calls <laughs> it, avoid rot. And results-oriented thinking, uh, very familiar to poker players, of which a lot of Magic the Gathering folks are. Marshall himself is, too. Mm -hmm. And that's judging a decision's quality based on how it ended up. Right. Really, you're better off judging a decision by looking at the info you had when you made it. Right. If you made the best decision based on the information that you had, then that was a good decision. If you made the decision that was like, okay, this is the only chance I have. It's a small chance, but it's the only chance I have. This is the way I have to go and it turned out wrong, that doesn't mean it was the wrong decision. Right. And I look at some things that happen in organizations, you know, living in the corporate world now, where, you know, whether it's somebody with sales goals or whatever other metrics that they want people to meet, and it's like, well, you did bad because you didn't meet those goals. Your activities must be awful. Well, that's not true. Right. Not necessarily. Right. There's too much of a, a focus on those results and not enough at all on the process. That's just something in the world that I'd like to make better. <laughs> let me let me ask you this. As, as a player who's always striving to improve, I wholeheartedly agree with you with the problem of results-oriented thinking. I guess the question is, how do you go about really accurately evaluating your results? So like you look at, you lost the game and you got a feeling maybe that you might've gone wrong somewhere. And then you kind of look back and you try to judge what's, what's the proper analysis to, to say, well, I made the right decision or I messed up. Is, is there, is there an accurate way to, 
to parse these kind of things out, I guess is the question. I mean, I don't know that there's an entirely accurate way. Like, we're not like World Series of Poker on ESPN where we have like the little percentage to win showing beside, <laughs> right. beside our heads or anything like that. I don't know that there's a perfectly accurate way, but what you have to do is bring yourself back to what the game state was at that point when you made that call and say, based on this info, mm-hmm. and we're lucky because Dice Masters is almost entirely open information. There you go. Based on this info... Was that a smart choice? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How it how it ended up was is not real. Does not really enter into it at all. An example I talked about recently was in the uh, Dice Fight XL. There was a game that I lost, and it was because a big part of it was range was against me, and my Mystique never rolled character. Right. The mistake was not buying Mystique. Actually, the mistake was probably not buying Mystique sooner. Right. But Mystique was the way out. Mystique was the proper choice. Right. It's it's interesting that you mentioned that because back when I was in high school, I had a we had a couple forays into trying to math out Dice Masters is to the point where you could have those numbers floating behind the head like they have in ESPM poker. The first one was we tried to figure out This is a bit different, but we tried to figure out an effective notation system for Dice Masters so that you could record your games with pen and paper like you have in chess. And we quickly figured out that there are way too many variables in the game and way too much complexity to the turn to ever have that be feasible and accepted by the other player. Um, And then I also spoke to my math teacher about trying to figure out the probabilities for each and every thing. And she spent a, a good 90 minutes with me trying to figure out some good system for this, to which I am grateful for Miss Wong. You were a great math a teacher. teacher. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, no, she was a great math teacher. And like we could not reliably get past the third turn with any sort of concrete data. And this was during the Yuan-T meta, so there were the board was slightly more open than it is now. But even so... You have to use your intuition. You have to be experienced in that intuition. Way back, you have to have the strategies like you're talking about that are somewhat universal across TCGs. But you have to have a good way to just kind of estimate it and ballpark it. Because you're right, there are too many variables. I mean, this is a game that's centered around variance. It's built on variance. And a a conversation that that Walsh and I had back around that first Origins was talking about how variance works in Dice Masters, and we thought of it like almost like a sine wave where like you're trying to pull it back into the middle, but the game keeps like fighting you and bringing you swinging you back out to the outside. And the more that you can do to control that variance, the more likely you are to win, Mm -hmm. but it also makes it really hard to predict anything because you're right. I mean, your game can go very differently just depending on, well, one, whether you're first player or second player two, depending on how those dice roll on that very first turn. Yeah. You know, so we were talking results-oriented thinking, and, you know, at Worlds, I was in the finals at Pauper. Right after the game, I kind of kicked myself, but then I stopped and I said, wait a minute. I was in the position where I had four dice in my bag, and this is literally what I drew. I drew Poison Ivy, the common, Astaro, the common, and two front lines. Mm-hmm. Oh. All I needed to roll was one front line and one character. If I roll two front lines, I win. Mm-hmm. If I roll front line and any face but Any combination of two dice, which is not Poison Ivy and Starro. <laughs> well, Poison Ivy yeah. gives me a character on five faces. Yeah. Roll. I get double energy on both of my front lines, single mask on Ivy, uh, level three Starro. I have to re-roll. Mm-hmm. Roll again. I get one front line, 
one mask on Ivy, one shield on Starro, and that was it. But I look back, I, I was kicking myself, but that's a perfect example of results-oriented thinking. Because I put myself in position to win that game. I shouldn't be too mad at myself for, for that well, position. Well, let's be honest right? about it, too. Just making top eight in a tournament is really good. I mean, every TCG celebrates not just their winner, their top eight. Because mm-hmm. getting there consistently, that was my big frustration coming into that commitment episode we talked about on TAZ, which was I had been, I had top eight a lot of things, I top four a lot of things, I was runner-up in a lot of things, but I hadn't yet really won right. a, a bigger event. And, and I was close on a lot of those. You know, I talked about, so Dave Walsh was my opponent in the very first round of U.S. Nationals. Yeah. And, you know, that he ultimately won. And I won the first game, he won the second game, and the third game went to turns. <laughs> and it was just like, who gets the right dice first? Yeah. And that was what decided the game. And he did. And that's just it. I mean, there's nothing wrong that I did. I don't think there's anything different I could have done. And I, I walked away from that feeling like that was amazing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Just making top eight at anything is really good. So I don't think there's any reason to... Anybody who's been runner-up, top four, top eight, and felt bad, unless it was an eight-person event and you were top eight, maybe a little feel bad. But otherwise... <laughs> You know, you got to put that feather in your cap because that is that is high quality stuff that consistently doing that is playing Dice Masters at a high level. Absolutely. And let me say, Dave Walsh, you know, our first inductee into our Hall of Fame. Absolutely no shame to. uh, And speaking of Walsh, you know, let's again jump back into the Wayback Machine here. You know, in my humble opinion, Dice Masters is at its best when there is more than one voice kind of bending about the ideas, you know, back and forth about the game. And back in the beginning, you guys had Dyson on, who Walsh was a member of, if my memory serves me correctly, as kind of your only foil. How aware were you guys of their perspective? And do you agree that having multiple views is, is healthy for the game and slash community? Oh, absolutely. It's it's good for the community. It's good for the game. Mm-hmm. You know, we certainly knew Dyson on. We listened to them a little bit. I mean, I listened to them a little bit. I can't speak for the others. Mm-hmm. There was definitely friendly communication here and there, though. They were kind of like the West Coast rowdy DM to our <laughs> East Coast proper DM, right? Yeah. Um, but we got along pretty well. Actually, the last night of that first Origins with Dice Masters, I actually stayed with Matt and some of the crew because my original hotel mates, we were staying at one of the convention center hotels and they were a little farther out, but they had to leave early. So I stayed with them. I mean, it couldn't have had more fun. Oh, um, cool. And actually that last day... Matt and I together had a long conversation with Justin Zyron, the president of WizKids, as well. Oh, wow. Um, So, yeah, we definitely got along pretty well. I I think one of the best things for multiple voices is that a lot of people who I see doing content now Mm -hmm. started that with a blog on the TRP site. Yeah, that's true. That's really, really cool. That's really cool. Yeah, like, what have you played is one of the ones that jumps to my mind here, right? So... I'm curious yeah. now. Now you've got my. Or, my... Um, what was that? Really quickly, was that, that other one by uh, what's his face? Never mind. There were a couple I'm other forgetting things. It. There was there was sidekicks and shields by a guy named Dane, and Dane mm-hmm. is down in West Virginia, same area as like uh, Truby right? and stuff. Yeah. The, the, the Cobalt King, and the other one that I'm thinking of. I don't know how long it lasted, but they called it Dice Masters Rules. Oh, yeah. no, the and one I'm thinking of is like the guy who is like it was like the theme of it was like underrated cards or like the common and slightly lesser version of very hard to access cards and building mm. very competitive teams out of that. And it ran weekly for like at least seven or so months by a guy whose profile picture was a bear with a monocle. <laughs> and I, he ended up on one of these podcasts. I forget which one, but like I'm pretty sure he's still speaking in the oh, community. Oh, you think about Narwhal? Like, 
Yeah. Is that the narwhal? Yes. Yeah. Is narwhal still around? I don't think he's playing dice oh, okay, anymore, okay. but he did run a couple he was of a good excellent, yeah. excellent series. And I got to say, I think it was oddball narwhal. Yeah. Along those lines, we were talking about names before. I mean, like that was just at the beginning. I don't want to leave people out. I mean, we had so many great contributors along the way. Yeah. You know, Isaac, narwhal, Truby, Michaela, Paul, Mike. Patrick. I, I'm going to leave somebody out if I try to name <laughs> everybody. Like it's just I can't do it, and I and I'm, I apologize if there's somebody who I just left off. But like it was so many, so many people who were just great who who were along for that ride. Yeah, we salute each and every one of you because you made a difference in this community. Absolutely. So uh, you piqued my curiosity about this conversation that you and Matt, who was the kind of your counterpart with Dyson on back in the day, had a conversation with Justin. Do you remember the, the substance of that conversation? I'd be curious. We just really wanted to talk to him and get a feel for where he thought the game was going and different things like that. And at that point, uh, one, Justin speaks very well of the game and things that he finds exciting about the game. We talked a little bit about that. He also talked about the very positive relationship that he felt was developing between WizKids and DA and WizKids and TRP, which is really good because, I mean, there's been at times a contentious relationship with the Heroclix community and mm. WizKids. And just some of the positives and things that that made possible. So there wasn't anything like incredibly substantial to it, but it was good to know that Justin's ear was an ear we could bend. That's interesting. That's cool. Well, speaking of the reserve pool and, and, and its influence on the Dice Masters community throughout the years, which definitely can still be felt, what did you find while you were kind of steering the ship, so to speak, the most difficult part of the gig? I know because it appears one way from the outside and it's another thing altogether when you're actually rowing away, right? Yeah, and this is a lot of why I'm doing UOD the way that I am. Mm -hmm. So like viewing these videos is a nice balance between kind of the podcasting and kind of the writing, two things I like to do but are hard to do together and then to sustain. And we learned a lot about that back in CRP. We had, I would say, too many plates spinning mm -hmm. and stuff got very hard to manage. Multiple podcasts, different kinds of content. Like we were a full Dice Masters multimedia one-stop shop. Yeah. Our solution oftentimes, instead of finding better ways to manage it, was to grow. And we had good people to grow with. I named some of them just a moment ago. Mm -hmm. But that also led to having a lot of cooks on a lot of different things. It's really a lot harder to be on the same page the bigger you get. And this is not like we were never at loggerheads or anything like that, but you start to value keeping things smooth for the sake of it over having a real dialogue. I, I took accept and accepted the blame for all of that. I was going through health problems at the time mm -hmm. when I walked away. What I later learned was multiple sclerosis. Oh, boy. And I just sort of turned my back on all of it. Mm -hmm. Not as much as anything is, is kind of why it ended the way that it did. If I could go back... All those different times, I would have pushed for us instead to refocus and reprioritize instead of looking at growth as our default path forward. Maybe doing three podcasts was enough and we didn't need to have X amount of articles a week. Right. Maybe one of the podcasts needed to go away and we focused more on... I, I don't know exactly what the answer would have been, but I think that is something that we needed to make decisions on before we just said, let's get another person to help us with content. Right. Those voices were good and adding more and diverse voices is never a bad thing, but sometimes it felt like we did it with the expectation that that would help bail us out. And then that new person inevitably would get bogged down the same way that we just had been and we'd be back in the same boat. Interesting. Yeah, finding yeah. a balance. For, for our podcast, it, it kind of went the opposite direction. Like we, we toyed around with doing articles, puzzles, stuff like that. And instead of asking for help from the community, 
we just kind of was like, yeah, this is too much work. Let's just do the podcast when we feel like it. Not even, we don't, we can't say that we do it regularly anymore because we don't. We had like a, what, seven month hiatus in there or something. Well, um, I mean, to be fair, also, I, I went through some of the same kind of stuff that you're absolutely. going through. Dave, I'm not saying so, it's not, ju- yeah. I, I'm not saying it's not justified. I completely, I guess you could say, I'm, I'm not as much as a, of a creator as you, but I mean, I'm, <laughs> it's still definitely a commitment, especially back when I was doing puzzles and articles and stuff. Yeah. So I, I get it. I, I wouldn't say that I regret limiting the growth that we've had just to the podcast at all. No, you got to do it smart like that. I mean, notice that I don't have a website for UOD. It's the YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. And even if a podcast ends up getting off the ground, the only website that we'll have is to host the feed for the podcast. Right. There are still people who are blogging and those articles are great and some people like the written word. But in the current state of things on the internet and content creation being what it is, the multimedia stuff is a lot more relevant and a lot more visible. And that's where the eyeballs are. I think it's just a more valuable use of time that way as it stands. Not that I'm telling anybody who I've read, I read those articles, so don't think I don't. Um, (laughs) I do and I enjoy them, but it's just the truth of what it is Right. right now. Back in the day, were you also doing most of the editing for the podcast as well? Yes, except for, so RJ was able to handle prep area on his own. That was a thing that RJ and Pat did to themselves, and they did a fantastic job with it. That was a really, really good podcast and a very different flavor from what we were doing on the other two. Yep. And really, they kind of came to me with that idea, and that's how it, it got off the ground. I said, great, I love it, let's do it, <laughs> especially because it's not more work for me. <laughs> <laughs> right. um, but otherwise, Reserve Pool and Attack Zone, yeah, I was recording and editing both. And that was a lot on top of the articles and everything else. And the health Um, problems, right? So, you know. Yeah. Like I said, I had some health issues and family issues in this past year that definitely limited my ability to engage with Dice Masters and and this podcast, too, as much as I'd like to. I know, like you said, you've confronted similar mm-hmm. issues. If you feel comfortable with it, could you oh, yeah. discuss a little bit about how you handle this real life, real life, and I put that in quotes, versus gaming or, or mm-hmm. just you know your hobbies, yeah. your other part of your life? How do you find that balance and, and keep it healthy? And where do you think, I guess the deeper question is, where do you think your your gaming life, where does that fit into your sense of self and your whole community and the whole thing, you know? Yeah. So, well, yeah, if we're going to talk about this, let's talk about sure. it. So I have multiple sclerosis and I discovered that in, well, early 2018. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think the first things of it were creeping in in late 17. But uh, about two, three months after I stepped away from Dice Masters in the reserve pool, I had my very first ever attack. Wow. That was how I found out I had MS. I didn't know what was going on. It started where my legs were numb. And then I was numb from my sternum down. Mm -hmm. And then three fingers on both of my hands were numb. I I had no feeling. Like laying down, if if I was going to lay down on my my stomach, my legs were so numb to the point where it felt like I was – my bones were floating on top of a thing. Like it was, it was crazy. I was, I, I didn't know what was going on. Scary, right? And I'm at the doctor and we're doing different tests and all sorts of other things. And turned out, yeah, that's multiple sclerosis. The MRI was very clear. And of course, all of that tipped off a lot of health anxiety. So I, I found a counselor. That's something I'll, I'll say, whether you think you have anything mental going on or not, whether you think everything's very calm in your life or not, I think that everybody would benefit from a counselor. Yeah. But all of the anxiety, and we did some uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, which mm-hmm. worked very, very well. And I, I now have that a lot more in check. I, I've always been like an anxious person to a certain extent. 
But that really brought it all out and brought it all to the forefront, having this health scare. I'm worried that I'm yeah. dying. I'm relying on Dr. Google, which is the worst thing. <laughs> right. Do not Google symptoms ever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I was so backwards <laughs> that I convinced myself after looking at something on WebMD that there was no way it could be MS. <laughs> right. Yeah. So See, but, for, yeah. for so often, it's like the reverse problem where you just have a dry skin patch or something and Google convinces you that you have stage four melanoma. Right? Yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> the reverse can happen, too. But obviously, it's much better to just have dry skin and not melanoma than to think you don't have MS and because Dr. Google was being unclear, you know, or. Wow. Yeah. So I was really I was really in a state um, later on after as I kind of figured out what was going on with myself and, and whatnot. I, I kind of reached out individually to a few people and was like, hey, like, sorry, I like this is what was going on. This is how anxious I was. This is everything. And like, I, mm-hmm. I know that I was a little all over the place with other people, too. And I had to kind of reach out and do that. So then. We get to May, and my child is born. So while this is all going on, my wife's pregnant with our first child. Right, of course. Um, well, currently your only child, but uh, we're, we're hoping for more. And my child is born, and ultimately it turns out she has a rare genetic condition called spinal muscular atrophy type 1. Wow. So we then began an adventure in the NICU at Children's Hospital. Mm-hmm. And ultimately... She's doing great. There are medicines for the condition now. There are medical complexities that she has, mm-hmm. but she's an awesome kid and just started preschool. Oh, um, you know, we have in-home nursing to help with stuff and and everything else, but she's she's doing amazing. Great. But that was a whole lot of stuff all at once. Boy, that's a lot of stress all at once. So, yeah. Where does gaming fit? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. In a, in a difficult and complicated life, right? Because I haven't had an MS attack since then, but fatigue. Cognitive fog, that's all a factor with right. it, with a lot of those chronic illnesses, especially the autoimmunes. Yeah. And COVID now, too, you know, with COVID yeah. being an issue out there, right? So. Oh, absolutely. And we had to be careful. What's the main form of medicine for autoimmune? Yeah. Immunosuppressants. Right. Right. And when you have a child who has a trach. Oh, God. Yeah. It's also scary. a danger. Yeah. We, all had, we all got COVID mid-August. And I think my daughter actually handled it the best out of all of us. <laughs> of course. Um, which is amazing, given the trach and stuff. She's just gotten so much stronger. Her very first like cold when she was just before a year old, she was in the hospital for two weeks. Wow. But COVID, I mean, she, we, we took her to the hospital mostly so she could get the IV antiviral, but she was, she was great. Great. Oh, that's great. So gaming ends up being a nice and fun escape. Right. And even if I can't play because my wife's exhausted or there's no store to play at or whatever else, mm-hmm. I can talk, theorycraft, and so on. You know, we talked before, playing is hard to do sometimes outside the game table. The closest stores are a bit of a haul and are mostly magic Pokemon or Yu-Gi-Oh factories. Right. You know, even as big as flesh and blood is getting, there's no store in a 45-minute radius for me. There are several stores, but there's none of them that carry it. Interesting. Right. It's a shame. Yeah. Like, you know, smaller stores just don't have the space or players to support niche games without a lot of luck. Like, you really have to hope that there's just the right group of people. You end up with these small oases surrounded by desert, and yeah. no company seems to have figured out how to bust that. If Ghost Galaxy takes Keyforge and actually builds a true digital client, they could be the first ones to bust it, but we'll see. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, we feel I mean, so For lucky. a lot of times, like, this is kind of a, a resigned approach to take, but what we've been trying to, you know, espouse here on Rolling Thunder is these oases are kind of inevitable, but as players, we know that WizKids 
is not making a ton of money off of our games, uh, and stores aren't making always a ton of money off our game, especially not in the big cities, as you're mm-hmm. saying. So players, friend groups have a responsibility if they want a scene to go to the store and just supply that store with that business themselves. Mm-hmm. It only takes like four or so people, and it happens less so now just because ever since COVID, COVID was obviously not good for board games, but the Mississippi crew is a great example of that, although they don't really have a friendly local game store in the near mm-hmm. area. But, but they figured you know, out how to do it without one. And if you do have one, exactly. I mean, we feel very lucky because we've got a couple of stores in the Los Angeles area. So we have a scene still happening. And I'm hoping that, you know, with this reboot of uh, Dice Masters 2.0, so to speak, mm-hmm. that, you know, maybe we can get some more friendly local game stores interested and and local communities going, you know. So yeah, but, but I, I, so. I do think of uh, really quickly the Mississippi crew as like the ideal blueprint for how to create an oasis when you have no community at the moment. Mm hmm. That's yeah, right. and I hope you're right about that. I think, you know, the, the urban cores are where there's the best chance for it because there's a bigger population to draw from. Stores are bigger and so forth and so on. They tend to be anyway. Mm-hmm. Or at least you have a couple of very large ones, even if there are still small ones. And they can diversify into that other product. And that the, the very first store that I played Dice Masters at, where we had that the first DC draft and everything else, that's one of those kinds of stores. And that's great. But it's like an hour plus drive for me, and I just, it's very difficult to do with the family obligations and everything else. Yeah. And let's be honest, you're not wrong about what you just said about WizKids, but WizKids also doesn't really do a great job of helping themselves at all. Yeah. Wrestling with the idiosyncrasies, and I don't want to bag on them, but wrestling with the idiosyncrasies that WizKids brings is one of the hardest parts of following Dice Masters. I mean, in the past, it would get me really frustrated because there were a lot of times that the game fell on the cusp of real relevance. And if it had been managed a bit better, probably could have broken through. Uh, I've learned now to just look at it and shrug. But if I'm honest, other than releasing the game, I don't know that WizKids has really done anything to deserve the positive and passionate community that surrounds Dice Masters. But here we are anyway. But here we are. They've made it, an, it, an incredible it, They have game. lost. I, I, I try not to bag on WizKids, obviously. Even though we're not affiliated with them, we, we try to be supportive. But they, they've already lost a number of really, really great players just to fatigue. Even in our local community, the first person who comes to mind is Jason. Mm-hmm. Jason Gardner was just such a fantastic community member and player. I remember and that. like his only reason for leaving was he didn't want to deal with WizKids, <laughs> yeah. you know? Well, I'm seeing some changes here that I'm hoping are positive. Like the rules forum has been super active. They're mm-hmm. redoing the rules. They're putting in a whole new redesign. I'm hoping, and Jimmy seems to be very personally involved, so I'm hoping there's a new step forward, and I'm hoping that, I'm not not disputing anything you've said, Dave, I'm just hoping, yeah, no. as a player who loves the game and the mechanics of the game and just the community that's, that the people who've been attracted to the game, uh, I'm hoping that the company can kind of get in line with that spirit. We can and, and Jimmy, <laughs> if you're listening, this, this is you do a great job, Jimmy. If you're listening, you do a great <laughs> job. We have no issue with you. Yeah, and, I, and I'm just saying situation. that, again, objective big picture view that's just that's just kind of how mm-hmm. it's been yep. that's not to say that you know maybe the resources haven't been given to the people who need it or whatever else i don't know but the community persists yep and that's pretty amazing i mean i think that just speaks to how strong a system dice masters is itself i agree totally agree well, speaking of systems, so you, you've taken on a, a new challenge, and you've mentioned it a few times here, so I want to give you a, the proper introduction. You've now got a YouTube channel called The University of Dice. Tell us about it, where it came from, what was your idea going into it, where one can find it even. Sure. So Dice Masters, obviously, is a really special game for me. From day one, there's something about it that just spoke to me. It just like lit a fire in my brain. 
It's a really awesome combination of Euro and Amera style mechanics before that was even like an invoke thing to do. Mm-hmm. Moreover, I just felt like I understood a lot of it at a deep level. You know, maybe every meta hasn't been great for my style, but that doesn't stop me from finding high level strategy topics that are relevant and so forth and so on. So I start to see the Dark Phoenix Saga stuff. There are functional reprints of some abilities. There the artwork and some of the changes of the cards. Now all of them having the extended art and so on. And the bug just kind of bit me again. I really <laughs> wanted to play Dice Masters, even if it was niche. You know, in my time away, I tried a couple of things. There's Key Forge, which might hit a renaissance here soon. Um, I still like Netrunner a lot. I think the community's done an amazing job keeping that game alive, arguably a better job than Fantasy Flight did. Mm-hmm. Um, I tried Flesh and Blood, uh, but I got turned off at how speculation-focused it is. And I don't, I'm not one of those people who's like, oh, Flesh and Blood is just for collectors trying to make money. No, it's a great game that holds up really well on its own, but the prices are awful. And even in the mainstream, price watch posts are very common. It's like a game that feels run by the MTG finance bros. Mm-hmm. And then there you also have these content creators who have a Patreon to let you into their playtest sessions and to share data and stuff. It feels really greedy. It says, we know so much more than you, so pay us. Right. And that bugs me. That's why we always took the approach we did on Reserve Pool. We never claimed to know better, but we wanted to foster discussion and enthusiasm. And even if Dice and collect started, good data. And you guys yeah. collected a lot of great data too, like hard data. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. I think even if Dice Master started right now, today, and TRP was what it was right now, today, there's never a piece of advice we'd have ever charged for. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. we monetized a tax zone, but that was to support buying packs for the popular segment that we did. And then we gave away the valuable cards from it anyway. Right. So that's not really a one-to-one. So regardless of all that, that's all to say content creation seemed like a natural thing to come back to because well, I, I've done it before. And the warm welcome has been really cool to, to experience. So University of Dice, then, is a couple of things. First, as the name implies, it's about learning, much in the same way that stuff I did back before was. Reflection, growing in your knowledge and, and skill at the game. It's also a name that is very intentionally not limited to Dice Masters, mm-hmm. which was a, I'm going to say a problem with the reserve pool was that we couldn't pivot to anything else with that name if we wanted to. <laughs> Oddball right. Narwhal and I started the Wealthy Wampa as a sister to all of that with Star Wars Destiny. And we were excited about it and we got to a certain point with it. And it was just like, it was again, one of those things that was just too much. And I know he was disappointed that I said, I don't think we can sustain this, but I would not have been able to do it. It was what my eyes were bigger than my ability to time manage, I suppose. I get it. But in any case, this is not just limited to Dice Masters. Everything I've done so far is about Dice Masters, but I like a lot of games. Netrunner, mm-hmm. Keyforge, to name a couple. It's possible something related to that could creep into the channel here or there. Heroescape is set to come back. I can't imagine not talking about that a little bit. I love Heroescape. I still have a lot of terrain and minis. Um, that oh, wait, they're, the they're bringing that back? Yeah. Hasbro recently announced that through Avalon Hill, which is one of the companies they or Wizards own, whatever, it's still Hasbro. They're bringing back Heroescape. Okay, that's something I've always been interested in trying. It looks super fun. It's really you know, cool. Giving yourself over to that entire concept and just playing that seems like a lot of fun. Unfortunately, the price has been a very real barrier to entry because out of print. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, it's really cool. That was actually probably one of the first modern tabletop games to hook me. But obviously, there's a primary focus on Dice Masters. Even if I do dabble into other areas, I, I think Dice Masters, at least right now is the is the main focus and in doing it as a video as i mentioned earlier it's a nice balance between podcast and writing i still get to do kind of the speaking stuff the audio stuff i'm writing out little scripts or bullet points ahead of time prepping all that stuff 
and it makes it a lot easier. There's some content that, hey, a three, five minute video is going to cover it, or hey, this one's going to be a 10 minute video or, or plus. And it really just kind of gives you the opportunity to adjust what you're working on as your week goes. Right. Whereas we didn't really have that opportunity. If a set release was coming out, we had to do a big old show about it, right? Yep. And I, I'm not going to feel the need or the obligation to do things that way right now. That's cool. You know, before we get into some of the specifics of the shows that you're covering, I just want to take a slight tangent because you brought it up. This idea as a content creator, you were talking about this with Flesh and Blood and things, and it just popped into my mind. Did you guys ever have any concern being active players and content creators? And did you ever, like, was there a, I don't even know how to articulate this correctly, because it just just occurred to me, like, is there a natural tension between the community that hopefully people are marching in line with each other and welcoming? Or did you ever feel like, I'm this content creator, did you get, did you get people thinking like, oh, you guys have the inner track and we're outside? Or how does... Is gatekeeping uh, an issue? Is gatekeeping an issue? Yeah, I guess that's... that's and, and it seems like you were wrestling with it a little bit by keeping things free, but are there any other issues that I'm, I'm just that, that should have should have occurred to me as a podcaster that, that are now just occurring to me? <laughs> well, I think one, there, there was a little pressure that I'm sure I know I did and I'm sure some of us put on ourselves. Like if we're talking about this and we're trying to be some kind of authority, we better also be like at least a little bit good right, at this. Right. <laughs> and luckily, luckily we were. And a lot of that quality of play just kind of comes from like immersing ourselves in in the game so much right but as far as any of that stuff kind of goes with the community i don't think so you know we never at the time i was involved anyway i don't know how people have done things since we never got anything from whiz kids that wasn't already out there if we had like something that we got to spoil you know everybody was going to see that ahead for rolling thunder we were given one set to spoil i think it was wwe and the, the strings attached to that was that we had to release our content surrounding all the cards that we had spoiled within 48 hours of having received the spoilers mm-hmm. from jimmy we got one card it wasn't the whole no WWE. we got the full set we got the full set of wwe spoiled now some of those cards had already been spoiled right. but there was like a solid like 15 16 cards that were new to the public and that but and I think that makes that sense. was and that's that's, that's a pretty good policy I thought we had two days extra we didn't abuse that time you know <laughs> you can't really abuse two days no you can't all right so let's jump into some of the topics that I particularly loved from the reserve pool and I'm happy to see them now showing up as themes that are continuing on the University of Dice so some of the ones like your analysis and your deep dives into strategy and the thought process that goes behind it For example, your videos on results-oriented thinking, like we talked about before, or average case scenario, or the burden of interaction, or what else? There's the list goes on here. You know, inevitability, for example. Mm -hmm. Any thoughts on why you're drawn to such issues of structure and analysis before we get into breaking down what those terms mean? Okay, so broad strokes, there's the strategy of the game on the table the cards in front of you, whatever the board is. And then there's a strategy up in your head. Right. And I think the latter is much more important. Mm-hmm. If you focus on making really good decisions and giving yourself the tools to make really good decisions and then squeezing every bit of opportunity out of the chances that you get in the game, you're going to win more over time, yep. even in unfamiliar metas or limited formats. Yep. And that's actually why I'm drawn to limited. I love putting together draft teams or more recently what we've had the opportunity to do here in our house is sealed. I'm a crap builder for constructed formats. Too many options, too much stuff. I think I would, you're underrating yourself, but go no, on. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, 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 no. 
I mean, you you're can being, you're being at least a like. little bit modest. <laughs> no, 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 no. I did. Okay. The Detroit Wizards Open, I won. That was not my team. That was the team. Michaela broke down that team on, on the attack zone a little while before it. I can't remember if she was on it or if we just talked about it. I don't remember which. But that was Michaela's team, and I tweaked it just a little bit to fit what I thought the meta might be. The High Hopes team they, with the U.S. Nationals, right. that was Randy and I together. Okay. I would not have been able to do that myself. Various teams I took to different PDC events and whatever else were just tweaks on the Jinzo control. I can tweak stuff, okay. but I can't build it fresh. All right, but enough. in limited, that's different because when there's limitations on something like draft, I feel like I can thrive there. My favorite draft format ever was probably Justice League mm. because there were so many cool things available. There was a really great Bolts team you could draft. There's ways to do stuff with Unblockable the Flash. There was Villain Synergy with Black Manta or Blue Beetle and so on. It felt really strong as it set within itself. And there were so many archetypes that were driven by common cards. It was such a fun draft set. Yep. And that's where I feel like I can build. But other stuff... Uh. <laughs> well, and to be fair, I also give Randy a lot more credit than myself for High Hopes. But I bring up the, the stuff with Limited there to say that I think those strategies especially help with Limited, where you mm. need to do that on-the-fly card evaluation. There's a lot of stuff that you need to do and think about really quickly. Mm-hmm. And again, that's where I... It was with playing a lot of draft that I started getting into that Magic the Gathering podcast and pulling those concepts. But even then, it's really funny uh, because, as I said, I opened up the old blogger site and looked at some of the old articles from all the way back in spring 2014 when the game first comes out. And this is before I knew anything at all about this stuff. And I hadn't really seriously, very seriously played a CCG. And some of the same things are right there. An early article comparing strategy in this game to deck builders like Dominion, examining when it is and is not right to spend energy a certain way, breaking down the options you have for the first turn of a game, breaking down the true cost of buying dice, looking at like opportunity cost and everything else, really like situational nuts and bolts kind of stuff. And I'm reading those and I'm like, man, I got to make that into a video because it feels just so relevant Great. as it used to. Yeah, well, please do because, uh, you know, I don't think <laughs> the site's up there anymore, right? So you've got access to something that most folks probably don't have access to anymore. And uh, Only great. to a certain point. Yeah. Um, it was supposed to have been archived. I don't know what happened to that. I don't know. That's Isaac could probably tell you more about that than I could. Right. And uh, or, or maybe even Ken, if anybody can ever find the guy. But uh, <laughs> only to the point where we swapped. So I have everything up until that last post where we said, like, okay, see you on the other side. Right. And then I have nothing. So Interesting. I don't know. Like, Dice Masters Unlimited is a a pretty big Discord. Maybe we can send some of these people some pings, do some investigation. (laughs) I've looked through some stuff in the – like, a lot of it you can still find in the Wayback Machine, but because it was, like, PHP-based, it doesn't always play nicely with Wayback. Right. Interesting. Put it this way. It's still relevant. Like you said, and you've got a channel, so let's dive into some of these terms that we sure. brought up earlier. Like, let's jump into average case scenario. That's one of your recent mm-hmm. videos, and I thought it was great, so lay it on us. Yeah, it's easy to look at a card or a subset of cards and think, those are really, really cool, but how often will the thing that they do actually happen? Mm-hmm. And I, we miss that sometimes when we're looking at an interaction. That could just be a complicated ability on a single card. Uh, or it could be a strategy that relies on four completely different dice all happening to get on just the right face at exactly the right moment. <laughs> right. And that would be really cool and amazing if it happens, but that doesn't mean it will happen that often. I, actually, a great example there. So that High Hopes team, first U.S. Nationals, it involved Ant-Man, the common textless Ant-Man, Nick Fury, Patch, who could double Avengers attack, and the Green Goliath Hulk, 
who kind of speaks for himself. If, look it up on Dice Coalition's <laughs> Team Builder. But um, <laughs> bang and blow away. <laughs> yeah, it could. It was capable of a turn three kill. Mm-hmm. How often could it happen? Uh, average case scenario, right? It was capable of that. The whole of that U.S. Nationals had happened once. And unfortunately, when it happened, it was against Randy. <laughs> right. <laughs> After that game, I said, I feel like I just like ran you through with a sword that you forged. <laughs> right. It was like, you kind of did. You kind of did. Yeah. But it wasn't built to only win that way. Right. Like that was a really cool thing that it could do. But if you set up with that in mind, you still could pivot to other things. It's interesting. The card that you were talking about in your video was the rare Wong from Infinity Gauntlet. And when I was watching the video, I was thinking of Troy. First, he was so excited to play it, and then he found out that the average case scenario for the card was uh, less efficient than he had originally. It didn't, it didn't play as well as it read. Let's just put mm-hmm. it that way. And well, uh, so Also, in the defense of Troy... We had that card, the Wong, spoiled very early, and we did not have Black Widow spoiled until very, very late. The rare Black Widow, who performs a very similar function. That's true. But with a much better average case scenario average. Probably true. Probably true. Let's jump on to the next one. How about Burden of Interaction? What's going on with that phrase? Yeah, that's the newest one. Mm -hmm. And the name just kind of struck me. It kind of came to me when I was trying to find a good way to articulate the pros and cons of, of action cards. So, okay. so there's there's a cost to use in uh, abilities in the game, and then there's different durations that they'll act on the board. So a, a global ability, I spend for it. It's available all the time. It's also available to my opponent, but whatever. I can spend it. It's cheap, but the interaction tends to be a one-shot. Mm-hmm. It's very temporary. Compared to a card, it requires a lot more setup cost, like a character. A lot more setup cost, but then it's persistent. It's in the field. Even if it's a blank card, it's still a body in the field that affects the board state Sure. for as long as it's there. And then the pitfall with basic actions is that it actually takes the drawback of both sides. It's a temporary effect, but then it also has a lot of setup cost. Because you got to buy it. Yeah. So basic actions with it. There, there are a few exceptions. One, there's ones that just win you the game. And two, there are ones that actually do affect the board state, like mutation slash polymorph affects the board state by either acting as removal or getting a key piece onto the field really quick for you. Now, the counter here, when I talk about how actions can be problematic in that way, they're also bad characters. I believe Laurier uh, made some comments on this. And I love, by the way, I knew that was going to be controversial uh, to some when I posted it. And that's great because I want that conversation. And if we're not talking about those things, then it's a less rich environment for everybody. But in any case, uh, he, he disagreed. And one of the points there was there are also bad characters who will never leave our binder. But let's imagine draft where there are bad characters who you might play anyway, because at least it's a body you can put in the field. And then it still affects the board. But a basic action doesn't give you that outside, again, of the few that win you the game or, or do impact the board. So that's the idea of the burden of interaction. Global abilities have a very light burden in exchange for a temporary effect. Characters have a heavier burden in exchange for a more permanent effect. Mm-hmm. And basic actions have a high burden, but a temporary effect. I think maybe some of the, the reaction from Lawyer may, may have been because you had used the phrase, the action trap. Yeah. And he, he, he didn't like, I think, I'm speaking for him here, that he didn't like that idea that actions are traps. Well, but- to speak to that... He's saying that from the perspective of somebody who, who plays already at a very high level. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, 
congratulations to yes, him. Yes, absolutely. He just performed very, very well. <laughs> and that's so awesome. You know, he, again, longtime member of the community, fantastic guy. I'm talking, I'm looking at that too from the perspective of I'm teaching somebody the game right now and we put, say, anger issues on a team. He wants to buy that. Right. That's not why it's there. You, you really have that. You can buy it and there are situations where you might, but it's really there for the global ability. And it's understanding, you know, there's always the things. Uh, I, I don't, like, know, that, that, I don't know that anger issues was the best example for the point you're trying to prove. <laughs> but sorry, continue. Bad, bad, bad action, it's true. <laughs> it's but, a great yeah. action dive. But there it's are pretty, it's I, pretty I get good, the point you're trying are, to make. There are, there are action dice that I would include that can do similar things before I would do anger issues. I'd rather, I'd yeah, take no, something absolutely. you can give multiple cards over Crush, for example. Throne or, car or, is a more, it was out of print for a while, but it's back now. So yeah, yeah. But regardless, that, that was the one that happened in a thing that we, that we were doing at that moment. There was a discussion on Discord maybe a couple months ago. They were talking about Nefarious Broadcast. Yes. Was it worth buying because it can really jank up people using, say, Sinister? And mm-hmm. was that the, the conversation that kind of got this wheel turning in your head at the time or what? Yeah, it came from two fronts. It came from that conversation and then also seeing what my friend was trying to do when we were playing games. Mm-hmm. It, it was a little bit of both sides of that because there, even Nefarious Broadcast looks like a really solid card. And I'm not saying it doesn't have its uses, but you're in that situation, you're buying something that is solely used to disrupt your opponent and not at all used to help you win. In the meantime, while you're purchasing that, waiting for it to come through your bag and hopefully roll action, your opponent's doing things that help them win. Yeah, it's it's interesting. In this board state, I mean, against PXG, and if you've got something like Chalkboard or Becky Lynch on the table, and you can get it over there, and it can disrupt PXG, and your opponent's depending on PXG to get to... I mean, I saw Ben Scott use this to great effect in that golden tournament a few years back and it can just really muck up somebody else and if you can keep pxging and rolling it every time and stop them from pxging it can be the difference in the game but you're right it takes a very skilled you know it's not for your your average starting person you know you've either got to keep a very thin bag to be rolling it every time or you've got to pxg it onto and to be rolling it every time I'm I'm not disputing at all. Like the actions are tricky, you know, and and that's why. But but that's exactly why Laurier, I think, is taking an issue with it. Like Dave was saying earlier, he's coming from the perspective of someone who is very skilled. If there is an action trap, it's not something he would ever fall into, even accidentally. Yeah. Right. So it's it doesn't it might seem from his perspective like there is no action trap. Well, the action uh, trap he's that I see the actions but... that are good that he's inclined to use and so forth and so on, or the actions that you're including. Uh, again, I, and I saw this playing draft formats in in local scenes with players of varying skills and stuff. They would bring action dice and they would buy it, and I don't think they knew why they were buying it, mm-hmm. but they could afford it, so they were buying it. And that can be a problem with anything, but at least if you like, just kind of panic buy a character. That's going to be a body in the field for you at some point, if nothing else. But an, an action is very limited in how it can impact the game moving forward. You know, outside of some, Villainous Pack can just win you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you were one of the people who I think was originally talking about in the in the era of Jade Giant mm-hmm. about don't win more, just win, right? Yes. Uh, don't get more than what you need. And definitely this debate about actions with versus characters or globals or what have you is tied into that. And to the extent that you would be someone who would not buy more than you need to win, the actions are absolutely part of that equation. Like, right. I've played Laurier a few times. I've seen him play much more than I've played him. But he's a world champion now, and mm-hmm. even before that, he was runner-up in all the titles and so on. But 
he never ever would buy more than he needs characters exactly. or actions, you exactly. know, and even if he's buying Atlantis in 2019 and buying Villainous Pact in 2021, as you said, he's doing that when he's going to win or when he needs to get set up and he's never buying more than he needs. It's to very purposeful and it's happening at a yeah. specific time of the game. Yeah. But even if you yeah. look back at older metas like Wan T and, and a tune happening there, stuff like that, or boom, boom, right? Stuff like that changes what basic actions do. Yes. Right, it's yeah. not just the the thing that's on the card. It's also and also do damage. So that almost it's almost like adding a line of text to the action card that makes it something that can be more impactful. And and that's something else too. If you if you want to talk about a tune characters, well, that's that's one T that makes that happen. That's not the action itself. That's true. Yeah, the action trap, the one that jumps out to mind when I hear the phrase action trap, I, I think people in big entrance. I mean, that's the one where I've seen mm-hmm. people who are learning to play the game, they jump into that and it bites them down the road. I mean, maybe they get the or first the, yeah. killer start and it can be a great action on the right team, but it's got to be the right team. And, uh, you know, I, I've seen just people get bit by that action more often. I've generally not. seen it be effective most in some draft formats. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's where it tends uh, the to other one, work. the other one that's big in this, and people usually learn from it pretty quickly. But I feel like so many new players have a have a pizza phase, <laughs> right? Where they're like, I can ramp with this one cost action die because I get like two energy seventy five percent of the time, and forget that the other twenty five percent of the time I get nothing. And it's very debatable whether this. Well, it's not really debatable in my opinion whether this new die has any more value than even a sidekick. There's that cost one energy, and especially for so much of this game's history where we haven't had one cost on the table aside from pizza, that's very attractive. Nah, you know, yeah. but don't, it's don't people learn. Don't people eat the learn. Pizza. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't eat the pizza. The pizza phase is temporary, but well, it's like a very, very potent example of mm-hmm. uh, the action trap. Yeah, I want to take this moment just to talk about a little bit more about some of the inherent differences between actions and, and characters while we're on the topic. I mean, it's interesting that even WizKid seems to recognize, you know, I've heard Jimmy refer a couple times, like, it's X on legs, you know, it's even better. It can be a blocker in the field that can stick around, it can be persistent. You know, there's occasionally times, I know Lucan made a point back when, where where sometimes, there are, there are occasions where sometimes it's a problem to get something stuck in the field if you want the effect to keep coming around. And in that case, where an action can actually be better in that case, like if you roll energy, that's fine, but if you roll action, it's good. And if, it, for example, if it's a character and you roll a character and then you have to field it to get the effect and then you got to KO it to get it up. So any thoughts on that where maybe there are some actions where you just actually, they're better the fact that, that you can't put them in the field. You just want this thing to well, keep coming can, around. Can I elaborate really yeah, quickly well, on that? Because it was a very different time when I said yeah, that. Yeah, t- t- um, Because do. we were... In that meta, you know, that was, we had PXG, we had Blue Eyes, but we also were dealing with stuff like Oracle and Jinso everywhere. For every Professor X you're dealing with, you're looking at two things that crush that. So it's this point in time where we're saying, well, I love my one field effects, I love my one KO'd effects, but it's not just the cost of this one bolt that it's going to take to get me there. It's going to be one additional energy and two life, and that's not something I can pay all the time just to cycle my elf thief. I think we right? also had Constantine, um, and which so, was shutting down one field. And, and Constantine, too, right? exactly, right? Like insult to injury, injury, right, permanently, if your opponent remembers to name. So these were all <laughs> things that we were thinking about. And nowadays, there's still some global hate, for sure. You know, Pip or Jean Grey or Lalandra, a personal favorite of mine. But it's not nearly as prevalent as it was then. If you need to get something KO'd, you can do that. And so the appeal to action dice isn't quite there right now as, like, with the whole with legs argument. Interesting. But, I, was just, I, was just, I mean, yeah, I, I would also like to hear here, yeah. on, the, on, the, on the subject, I'd like to pick Dave's brain. 
about where would you put when fielded or when KO'd characters on the spectrum of um of, the burden of like you know the burden of interaction right if you have like it has legs but its primary effect is instantaneous and so it's like is it like between action and character it really depends. I think if you have a lot of when fielded stuff, you often have other cards that are helping you take advantage of the fact that you're using when fielded stuff. You know, Jubilee, Super Rare, Thor could be great examples of that. You want to cycle things because that also helps you win. But then again, that gets to a talk of that's just synergistic the same way we're talking with uh, Wan Chi. I don't mind that, especially now that we have the Dark Phoenix Global, because paying to knock it out is also providing a discount on something too. So there's like kind of a, a, a knockoff effect that you get that if you need to buy something more, you know, you're knocking it out, you're hopefully going to get that effect again. Or also thinking like Poison Ivy is my favorite one to knock out because on five faces, she's character. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'm happy to just keep doing that as I need to. So I, I don't know that I, I put them very differently because even if it's stuck in the field, it's still a body. It can still block, it can still attack, it can still do all of those things. It's not in your bag, it's not clogging your bag either. Right. But compared to an action die, you, you don't have any choice. Once it's action and once it's used, it's going all the way through your bag. And we don't have as, as many things right now that can help you control your bag as much as we used to. Professor X was a great one you brought up um, a couple of times here. But my favorite one was probably the combination of Ring and Resurrection. Oh, sure. Yeah. And I can't remember the specific text of the Global One Ring. But regardless, you could use that very skillfully to control what was going to be in your bag. Clayface is sort of the next version of that, which we, we yeah. used also. But moving things yeah. out of used and into the transition or into the field and the, to make sure you got four or five, yeah. But yeah, ring res was like a very skillful way to do it. And you could do that. What that really opened up was being able to not have to dedicate a slot on your team to Professor X. Yeah. And then if your opponent had it great, you could use that. And if they didn't, you were set to go very efficiently you know, regardless, because you'd practice with how Ring Res was going to work. Yeah, and, and you built your really, team really for cool. it, too, so that yeah. you had three and four cost characters that worked. Did that Ring Res you was on your WKO team, if I'm not mistaken? Yes, correct? it was. Well, then the last term I suppose we should talk about is inevitability. I think yeah. that probably speaks for itself, but but just in case. Sure. The idea is, is if you have inevitability, then the game is in a state where if it keeps going as it is without significant disruption, you're going to win right. if you have inevitability. You've, you've locked things down enough and you just can keep going consistently. That's probably my favorite way to win. Hello, Rare Colossus. Um, I like those damage teams. <laughs> yeah, that Colossus. I I was so excited to see that Colossus reprint because it's just like a, that little bit much better than the very original Colossus that we got way back in AVX. Very similar, but a little cheaper and so on. Uh-huh. But he doesn't fit as it stands right now. And I'm hoping that Secret Wars will allow that. There are several win conditions. I got my fingers crossed for when Secret Wars comes out. Uh, well, but, well, uh, do tell, do tell. Uh, what, what I will say, <laughs> I will well, say that uh, boxing your opponent out is good for the cardiovascular health. God, you, know? <laughs> <laughs> well, you had some some high hopes for for Secret Wars. What what are you what are you thinking? Well, about? I don't know what I'm. I haven't seen all of the spoilers. Uh, you know, they they come out and sometimes it's like a little piece of a card and you can guess what it says. So I haven't like gone crazy. I'm just hoping that there's stuff in Secret Wars that will change the meta to a point, or action actions perhaps that WizKids will take that will change the meta to a point where we can see things like 
Rare Colossus, mm-hmm. Rare Shazam, and or Brainiac. I, I like that one too. I would love to see, and I did a video on it, something happen with like Range plus Super Rare Wally West. Oh, interesting. With a double yeah. attack. That's mm-hmm. just so cool. I love the idea of it. Those win conditions that take a little bit longer and are as such forced out of the game right now. I actually think that when you have a lot of Villainous Pact and the front line or their similars, whatever similar card through the history of Dice Masters, when you have actions like that as primary win conditions, it's probably, generally speaking, it probably says the meta is probably not in a great place. I think and that's not taking anything away. You, you play what you need to play to win. I had Professor X on my team at that U.S. Nationals after writing a series of articles on why Professor X was bad for the game in different ways and mm-hmm. saying that WizKids ought to take some sort of action. And I still had it. The Dice Anon guys were like, yeah, we read all those things. We, we, were, we were surprised that it was on your team. I'm like, well, I'm not crazy. I want to win. <laughs> you know, I, I would play those cards too if that was what was going to win. But I think when you have actions like that that can just kind of win on their own and are not super specific to the types of characters mm-hmm. that you have or which characters you have. There are a few ways you could get them off the ground. That means that there's not enough happening in the general cards in the set and that you're relying on those basic actions. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, one of the things with those basic actions is also why I'm glad Limited is now about the actions that you find in the draft packs and not all the basic actions that you have. Yeah, Because it's too true. easy to just draft a team and say, eh, villainous pack. Well, Dave, you had said that that inevitability was your favorite, and I cut you off. So I want to give you a chance to elaborate on your favorite style of play and maybe some of your favorite cards before we get into a little segment we like to call shenanigans and shillelaghs. Shenanigans, you say? Yeah. Boy, that was a that was a watchword for uh, <laughs> many, the, many the TRP way back when. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> See, they steal from the best. And that, that, well, thank you. I liked. I like the decks, like the, the, the Jinzo Control, not so much like the original version of it, but where you got Nova involved. Mm-hmm. You just like work methodically to lock down the board and then just chip away. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I really like that because it feels very, the, there's the overall strategy and the plan, but then it, it feels very tactical. Even like the Bard meta, as much as I could complain, and believe me, I could, mm-hmm. as much as I could complain about that, at the same time, the games that I played at that Kids Open in Detroit mm-hmm. were incredible yep the bet i played the best game of dice masters i ever have there it was actually the last game of swiss and it was keith and i played to a tie i offered the intentional draw beforehand because we both would have made top eight and he said no i want to play it out and i said totally respect that and we played and we ended up playing to a natural tie but it was incredible decision making on both sides and if one of us had just been a little off it would not have gone that way at all and it was an amazing game. So as like annoying as Bard was, it was such a methodical, tactical, thinky chess match. Mm-hmm. It was incredible. But my favorite cards there, I got to go back to High Hopes. I mean, I know that's nostalgia, but you know that was that was top eight, my first big tournament of any kind in any game. You know, it was a big partnership with Randy and I putting that team together. He wrote the article on it, and that was again Ant Man, Nick Fury, Patch, and Hulk. And what was the idea behind it, just for those of us who weren't around in that era? Yeah, sure. The idea was alongside Professor X to basically buy Ant-Man, two cost, buy Patch, four cost, and then get into Hulk, six cost. And with like the right combination of things, it could do a turn three kill. I think actually for the, for the kill, you just needed Ant-Man, Nick Fury, and a sidekick in the field. Right. It just had to be the proper levels. And then you would pivot to Hulk if the game was going to go longer, which it often did, mm-hmm. which was fine. And then you had like Slifer the Sky Dragon, so that he had the, the ping global similar to Magic Missile. 
but mm-hmm. we had the basic actions open for other things at that time. I like the flexibility of having globals in different places. But yeah, that was effectively uh, how that worked. So it, it had to be that one. It, it was eight and two in Swiss between the qualifier and the actual event. And it was just a single turn or arguably a single die face away from, from beating Walsh in the top eight. That was just by a thread, that game. Yeah, so um, close. And it was a really cool game. And, and, and Walsh and I have always gotten along really well uh, and stuff like that too. So, you know, had no issues with it. That was actually the one we first met, but uh, we got along like pretty much immediately. That, that doesn't surprise me at all. It's a Dave really, thing. Well, you know, yeah, two Daves, <laughs> two great Daves, both easygoing, really great guys. And obviously deep thinkers about the game, too. I could see you guys hitting it off like a house of fire for sure. Maybe you've already answered this question, though, but but just in case, we do have this little segment that we do occasionally called Shenanigans and Shillelaghs, in which we're hoping that maybe you could break down your favorite combo or combat trick of all time for us. You know, it's interesting you bring up combat tricks. Combat tricks are really hard because they're not really... In other games, you say combat trick because it's unexpected. Mm-hmm. Yep. But everything's open in here. So it's it's hard to say combat trick that somebody truly didn't see coming. <laughs> well, there are well, some... Well, I don't know. That's kind of what makes a, a combat fun. trick so great, though, right? Yeah. In Dice yeah. Masters. Like, you know, I don't know. It's been a long time since we've done shenanigans and shillelaghs, so we've probably spoken about some of the stuff before, but some of the crazy really stuff awesome. you can do with Polymorph. <laughs> but, I, like, combat tricks that I'm always thinking about, like, I saw one at Worlds this this year, which I thought mm-hmm. was great. It was Andy May, who finished second at Nationals, mm-hmm. and I think top four at Worlds. And he was running Arch Nemesis with his Master Mold team, and he was using it to kill the Poison Ivy plant tokens, smartly mm-hmm. enough, right? So you pay a shield, the attack becomes the D, the attack of zero on the plant tokens, so suddenly they become zero. You know, That's comp- a great idea. It's a good idea. A lot of people didn't see it coming. Suddenly, what you had thought you were putting out plant tokens to protect yourself from all of these Sentinel tokens coming across the board, <laughs> bam, uh-oh, one shield made them go away. So... Something like that is what I'm thinking about. You well, know, it's like, then, whoops, I didn't see that coming, you know. Then I have an answer there, and that would be uh, Solomon Grundy, buried oh, yeah. on Sunday. Yep. When he's KO'd other than by damage from an attacker or blocker, KO an opposing character. And that was used to great effect by Dean, Dean I Leland. believe, was the first yep. world champion, mm-hmm. uh, to beat Walsh yep. in, in that tournament. And I think a lot of people had overlooked Solomon Grundy. But uh, boy, nobody did after that. Yep. He was the 2015 equivalent of the rare Deken, which happened this year, where people didn't see that one coming. And boy, did that turn out to shake up the meta, you know. Mm-hmm. Any team that wanted an alpha strike was suddenly, you know, SOL, so to speak, when Deken yeah. showed up in the use pile, you know. I, I like Deken, and even before that, the one article or podcast po- podcast it was went up about it. I liked it, Ken. I think if you're looking for anything modernly, like in the past, we had cards like Mira. I mm-hmm. think it was if like something would deal you five or more instead it deals you three. Right. You know, it's not quite as effective as that, but it's better than the global that we have existing. Yep. And it's not too hard to keep them in the used pile. But again, that's speaking from a... I, I wasn't able to make it down to Tennessee, so that's speaking from a, a long view. You know what I want back in the game right now, speaking of you know, shenanigans and shillelaghs and combat tricks, along the lines of Solomon Grundy, Millennium Puzzle, or Ken that would serve a similar function right now, is that Storm Boys back with the global pay one bolt, give target character range one, mm. coupled with force attack, get Brainiac out there, get Shazam out there, give one of their guys little range one, and then force them to attack. And, wipe and their now board on you their get turn, to, yeah. on their turn, on their attack step, you get to get rid of everything. And especially if you got Shazam out there, that's going to be all their Master Mold tokens, all their Master Molds, you know, Thor, if they're running it, you know, anything, literally anything, is not there anymore. 
with Dreadnought, you never got quite the same level because so often they were also running Dreadnought. Now, because the investment into Brainiac or Shazam is so much higher than it was with Dreadnought and the meta is a little bit more spread out, when you make a choice to do that, if you also bring Stormboys, you just gave yourself something that they likely will not have inherent tools to deal with. Unfortunately, that's not reality, but... Oh, I would love that too. (laughs) Well, that's a good one. That's a good one, Logan. Yeah, cool. Yeah, when I got back in, I kind of like went back and bought the box sets and stuff like that that I had missed over time, uh, just in time for everything to rotate out. But um, I'm not sorry that I have them. Uh, but uh, I saw I saw that one. I'm like uh, in the team pack. I'm like, ooh, I like this. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, range was still pretty new to me, and I hadn't nailed down everything about how it worked. But boy, it's it's really cool, and I'm glad it's still in the game. As somebody who's come back, an original member of the community coming back, I mean, this is part of the reason for doing the podcast is to hopefully bring more folks like you back to the scene. Any advice or or thoughts for other people who are kind of on the fence about whether they want to come back to the community? Uh, what, what, what what say you? I think it's a great time for it. There are cards that have come back. There's old There's old favorites that are familiar that are still there. Maybe in a little bit, maybe with a new coat of paint, maybe with a slightly different ability, maybe a little bit better balanced, mm-hmm. um, we'll say too. There's familiar things that are there. The game looks better than it has. Uh, there are still rules issues here and there, but the game is worded and understandable more than it ever was. Yep. As a whole, it's a lot tighter than it used to be. And although the community might be more niche than it was a few years ago, the passion is maybe even greater. Mm-hmm. And I and I think that's awesome. It's not hard to find a game if you want to find a game. That's great. And I think that's the best thing. The other thing, especially having gone and looked at other games, you know, even Keyforge, which is touted on, you buy a deck and there it is. Right. The secondary market for a high quality deck in Keyforge is absurd. People were selling decks for like five hundred to a thousand dollars. Thanks. And and those transactions are being completed. Right. And it's absurd. And that's that game. The, this game doesn't have that speculation. Even at its height, it really didn't. Mm-mm. I mean, gosh, the WizKids Open team, like the most expensive card on it was Constantine, and even then he was maybe 40 bucks. Yeah. You the most expensive card that I can ever think of was the Altart Sarina that had a signature from Eric Lang on it going for $250. There you go. And I don't think anyone ever bought it. Maybe it's not listed anymore, but I have to assume that they just pulled it mm-hmm. rather than actually be able to sell it. Because that was like they put it up. That was always there since I joined the game, mm-hmm. and it was still up in like 2017 or something. So, there you go the, mm-hmm. the highest valued card ever in Dice Masters history, Altarts Arena with Eric. <laughs> you don't have the speculation. the The boosters are as tremendous a value as they ever have been. I, I would argue the draft packs are the best delivery mechanism we've had yeah. um, for Dice Masters as a whole. I really, really like them. I wish they had never done the team box thing because that took the wind out of the sails a lot at stores. It was especially right on the heels of them discontinuing one of the attack wings Mm -hmm. out of nowhere. And all of a sudden stores had all this product that they couldn't move. And then they do that to Dice Masters. And that's when a lot of stores and around me stopped carrying, almost wholesale stopped carrying WizKid stuff, except for some of the D&D peripherals that they now produce. Yeah, that's a little self-inflicted wound that we're still trying to recover from, I think. Yeah, But the draft packs are back and they're amazing. I agree. I love The draft packs are perfect with those boxes. One of our our actual original location, the Guildhouse in Bellflower, when they they stopped carrying the product after they switched to the the boxes, and they were saying like, because the boxes are now the model, nobody wants the old packs anymore. So for Halloween, they weren't giving away candy. They were giving away Dice Masters packs that they needed to move off the shelf. (laughs) Right? Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, the other thing is that, you know, we're moving, you had mentioned about the rules and just the way cards have been worded recently, and it is getting clearer. It's definitely way better than it was when it started in 2014, and I think we're still moving. We're still probably two sets away from getting fully into the new wording all the way, but they've been getting better, so that's good news, too. Stuff that should have been keyworded all along is keyworded now. Mm. It's just, it's a lot clearer, a lot easier to look at a card and say, this is how this works. Instead of back when, you know, the the Beholder, the old Apologies in Advance team, Beholder in Prison, that wasn't the original name for it, by the way. We called it Apologies in Advance because it was a lot nicer than what Evan originally called it, (laughs) which was the A-hole team for jerks. Uh, but it wasn't, That's a it was, better name and a more that, accurate name. That was name. the original name of Beholder Imprisoned. Uh, yeah, it, w- it was that. And I don't know the language level of your podcast, so I won't say it the whole way, but that was what he called it. Right. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> that was the original name. It took forever for them. I think somebody said they did finally clarify how that interaction worked. Yeah. But boy, that was in the game for a long time and I then reaffirmed with Ultraman and nobody knew exactly how it was supposed to work. I don't and think we're they, far it away took from some, that. It took some Canadians interpreting that in extremely bonk way for WizKids to step in and be like, okay, that's you've taken it too far. You do not create a proxy, right? You do not create imaginary dice for this effect. Right. Uh, that's what it took in order for a ruling to be dropped. But to WizKids' credit... In the past couple months, the rules forum has been getting a lot of... Oh, yeah, and it's been a lot better. That's what I'm saying. It's not like that now at all. And they banned banned in prison, uh, which is, like, that was the easiest way to clear all that mess up. Well, for sure, for sure. Yeah, and, uh, you know, we were going back, I think I might have told the story on the podcast before, but, oh, well, I'm doing it again. Uh, We were playing a golden event somewhat recently in, in SoCal, and I decided to break out an old favorite of mine, Millennium Puzzle, and... I knew what it does because I've played that card a million times, but there were people, though, who weren't playing back then, and so they were like, hold on, what does this do? And they were reading this, and then we like would realize at the same time, oh my god, this card makes no sense. I cannot <laughs> interpret what the hell they are trying to say with this die. Nothing about this is legible by modern standards. They, I think they've arrived at that, thankfully. But yeah, it, it, you really reading that card, you really clearly see how far they've come. It was a, a good marker for that at the very least. <laughs> Well, Dave, the other thing that I want to point out, as someone who has been nominated for the Hall of Fame, JT nominated you back mm-hmm. on, do you remember which episode number that was, Luke, off the top of your head? We'll put Seven. it in the show notes, at any rate. So if people want to go back and listen to an excellent episode from the past from with JT, they can, and, and hear your name get called out. One of the prerequisites for the Hall to being nominated was at the time was being a semi-retired player. When when JT nominated you, you were semi-retired. Now you've come out of retirement, which I think is fantastic. Congratulations. Welcome back to the scene. But now that you're a guest on the show, you get the honor of nominating somebody else or seconding a nomination for that matter. If you have anybody in mind, we'd love to put their name out in front of the community, so to speak. Yeah, and that's really difficult because there's a few different people I could name, but Mm -hmm. it it looks like I'm limited to one. You're limited Um, to one, unfortunately. Sorry. Um, No, that's okay. Um, So I looked at the list, and unless I miss something, JT himself is not on it. JT may not be on it. Maybe he is. If he is, that's a crime if he isn't. And that's crazy. There was one or two times that people tried to do it, but at that time, he had just come out of retirement to go kick some ass up in Canada with his Madam Web Uncommon team. 
And that was why he was back on the map, but that was also why we had to reject those nominations. But we would be very happy for his like, sake I and for the sake of... That makes you sense. Can totally nominate him. It that totally makes sense. Man, I think it makes sense. Uh, it has to be JT, not just because he nominated me, but because he surely deserves it. He's played yeah. a lot of Dice Masters. He's won a lot too. Even some of the things, you know, we talk about team building. He he and Randy theorycrafted the Phoenix fastball team on the way to Gen Con, and then yeah. he wiped the floor <laughs> with all those events. Like you know, he, he's but he's just a very thoughtful player, and him and Randy especially were just like very frequent playtest partners, and it was his prep with me for that Detroit WKO that got me in shape to win. Like he was the Adrian to my Rocky, even though he was also playing in the event. Um, <laughs> but he was the Adrian to my Rocky and without him, my prep is nowhere near as good. And I, and I don't do And he gave me some tough talk with that too. I was really dejected in the Bard meta. Uh, it felt like I had no idea how to play the game anymore. And I talked about that back at the time. Interesting. Uh, but it was playtesting with JT and, and talking with, with Mike, Mike Plum some too. And, and Randy, of course, we did a lot of playtesting as well. And, and talking with Michaela about how that deck worked and, and getting it right. But it was a lot of very rigorous playtesting sessions that he like put me back together as a player. And without that, I, I don't think I succeed at that tournament. That's interesting. Uh, just yeah. Very thoughtful player. Very good at making decisions. And, oh, yeah. and very much on the same track as me with those decisions, which is why he was like natural for him to be involved in the attack zone. And then Randy's team building prowess speaks for itself as well, because he there are a lot of very, very, very good teams that have done a lot of very successful stuff where that Randy crafted. Mm-hmm. If I could do a second person, it would be him just to shout it out, right. but I can't, so that's fine. But um, <laughs> there, Randy does not get the credit that he deserves for that. As a team um, builder, that's interesting. Yeah, there, there are a lot of great teams that have performed very, very well that even if he wasn't in the event or didn't win the event, he came up with, mm-hmm. you know, almost completely originally. And, and all those things have his fingerprints all over them. It's interesting because you mentioned JT and... You know, he, he said a similar thing, thing about himself. He said, oh, I can't build a team. And I, I say, yeah, I think you're underselling yourself, you know. And he said, no, no, Randy, Randy was a great builder. But JT could build a team. And he, he was, without a doubt, one of the consummate pilots out there. Just hands down, one of the best to ever play the game. Yeah, but opinion. here's the thing. I got to tell you, uh-huh. if two of us who worked with Randy are saying yeah. it was Randy, yeah, I think we got to accept that it was Randy. It may have been Randy. Well, hats off to you, Randy. So... Uh... <laughs> All right. Well, any, anyway, I want to th- thank you for that. And JT, you have now been nominated for the Hall of Fame. And before we go, Dave, anything else you'd like to say while you have the floor, so to speak? Gosh, I, what can I say? First, thanks to both of you for having me on here. I really am glad that we had the chance to talk about some of the history, too. Mm. There was... A- one time several years ago, Walsh uh, sent me a YouTube video to the Smash Brothers documentary about the earlier competitive scene in the East Coast and the West Coast and stuff. And he said, somebody should make this, but about Dice Masters and <laughs> yeah. Reserve Pool and Dysonon. Yeah, And I'm I like, agree. I would love to see that. But a lot of people don't know or don't talk about all of the stuff that went on back then. Mm-hmm. And it was really crazy because we were, we were at the beginning of, of things. Nowadays, a new CCG comes out and you have people who are content creating for the money, for the clout, for everything right. else that comes along with that. But when we started this with Dice Masters, like 
again, there's not there's not a lot of people who have monetized, and even if there are people that have, you know, I think recently there was one of the podcasts did, but like again, there's always been like really valid reasons for it, and it's very clear how that stuff's being spent and what it's for, and there's not like a quid pro quo yeah. with it the way that other people other people in other games ask. There's like there's like this purity to Dice Masters, and it's always been there in the community, and I, I think that's just incredible, and is really a testament. One again to how strong this game system is, but to how much the people who play this game love this game, that the community is still here through all these trials and tribulations over the years. That's just incredible to me that there was something still very strong and passionate to come back to. That's incredible. And I'm just really grateful for everybody. So uh, yeah, University of Dice on YouTube. I hope to see people there and subscribe, like, ring the bell, right? All those (laughs) things that you're supposed to say when you're on YouTube. Yes. And in the show notes, you can find all the links to University of Dice. And I'll try to throw some stuff. Maybe if we can find stuff from the reserve pool as well. Some of those early things, I'll I'll see if I can find those as well. But in the meantime, yeah, I, I just want to reiterate your point about everybody who's been podcasting or doing anything for Dice Masters right now is really nobody's making any money out of it. It is a labor of love and I want to salute that labor of love that you put in for so long on the reserve pool and right now on the University of Dice. Because for those who think that you're making a lot of money, you're not making money. I, I don't know if anybody thinks that. You know, well, some people do. I've, every once in a while, I get people coming and thinking, oh, you've monetized or something. It's like, no, really. It costs more than just to host a site and pay for all the little things. There's little chick, 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 chick. So, you know, all this stuff it, it is more than a labor of love. You know, we're, everybody who's doing this is doing this because they love the game and they love the community. And mm-hmm. my hat's off to you for all those years and for what you're doing right now. So, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I think there was like one time we ran an ad for a Kickstarter on TRP and all of that just went right back into hosting fees. And it was like 25 bucks. <laughs> that, was, that was it. I don't think I don't think it was anything more than that. We tried some stuff with like Amazon affiliate links again, just to help with server costs and everything. We were lucky that Ken had a lot of private stuff that he was able to bring to bear for us. But still, there were some little costs just for like domain renewal and whatnot. But um, yeah, most of, most of that stuff just came out of our pockets. And yep. otherwise, like the the Patreon that we did, that, that all just went right back into the six pack yep. um, so we could buy more for that segment. But yeah, well, there you go. You heard it, folks. It's truly a labor of love for this game, especially. So next time you check out a a video on the University of Dice, make sure you click that little like button (laughs) just for just for the good feelings, if nothing else. (laughs) Well, I think that's important for any content creator that you watch with Dice Masters. Make sure you've liked them. Make sure you've subscribed to them, because we all know that the YouTube algorithm is stupid. Mm -hmm. And if we do want the game to grow and get things to new eyeballs, the only way that's going to happen is through things like that. Yep. You know, somebody who's into tabletop games just happens to see that and says, oh, that's still around. Let me look at this. That That's just key for, yep. for the growth of it. We got to we got to rebuild. And that's that happens by talking enthusiastically about the game. One like at a time, so to speak. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Dave, thank you so much for joining us tonight and, and for staying up. I, I, my apologies to, to your family and to your daughter and your wife. But we've really enjoyed having this conversation this evening. As we say in Irish, Hawaii. So that was great talking to Dave. I'm sorry it took so long, Dave, to get it out. Hopefully this is still of some service to you getting some new eyeballs to your University of Dice YouTube channel. Lucan, we're going to be sorry to see you go back to school, but I'm glad to see you continuing on in your life adventures. They're pretty cool.
and we should take a moment to talk a little bit about One Big Weekend. We're still planning on doing it, but the trouble is we're trying to get it to coincide with Secret Wars because local scenes are such an important factor in One Big Weekend's, and drafts are what brings people to the local scenes like nothing else. So right now, that's probably slated for late May. That is still subject to change, depending on when Secret Wars comes out. It's still way too early to say. But we're hoping, we're thinking maybe May, June, sometime in that vicinity. If you're seen as interested, please reach out and get in touch with us. Are you ready to hit it and quit? Let's hit it and quit. I got to say, let's hit it and quit this time. That's such a big deal. <laughs> Anyways. In the door tree, Slangerfall! Well, that's the end of Turn 5, my friends, and it's time for the final clear. We hoped you enjoyed today's show. You can find us at rollinthunder.xyz, without a G or an apostrophe, where you'll discover all the links necessary to listen or subscribe to the show. You can also reach us by email at arge or lucan at rollinthunder.xyz. Our theme music was created by Jesse Weiner. We're in no way affiliated with WizKids, other than we love and celebrate the game of Dice Masters. So keep on rolling, August Narlagagia the Lao. We'll be talking again soon with another awesome guest. So stay tuned. Enough said.